0: Good morning. Please open your Bibles to John chapter one. And while you turn there, um, let me give you some idea of where we've come in John and where we're going. We're working our way through the prologue, sort of like the entrance foyer to the gospel. In these first 18 verses of chapter one, John is laid out, is laying out many, if not all of his major themes. And we're entering now into the last section of the prologue. That's why I've dealt with this as a unit, verses 14 to 18, even though we're only looking at one verse this morning. Now, the reason for that is this unit, verses 14 to 18, more than any other section of the prologue, is a unit. In particular, one Old Testament passage um exodus 33 and 34 forms the backdrop we to be going back and again and again as we study through these verses looking at exodus 33 and 34. and so that really unifies the theme you can put your marker there now if you want because we will be getting there this morning and that's of course the the chapters where moses goes up on mount sinai receives the ten commandments the people Worship the golden calf, he comes down, he goes back up, he asks to see God's glory. The Lord tells him, You can't see my face and live. And then he declares his name to him. And Moses comes down, his face shining. That's the section that forms the backdrop for these verses. So I'd like to begin by reading John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, even though we'll just be looking at verse 1. I mean, verse 14, the first verse today. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Lord God, we ask this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would um, establish your word as that which causes reverence and fear for you, but most significantly, Lord, that we might see the glory of the word, your son, that we might join John in that confession, that you might show us something in your son and in the incarnation that satisfies us, that elicits worship and praise and love and adoration. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You'll notice that the, um, the notes outline just follows the text. This is such a profound and rich text, verse 14. I just thought the simplest thing to do would just be to take the ESV's rendering and make it the points. Um, now, for the first time since verse 1, we return to the title of the word. In verse one, in the first chunk, John establishes the word's activity at creation. We, we learned that at what was by nature beginning, the word was already being. As one of my professors said, Jesus was ising to try to communicate the sort of progressive, ongoing nature. And we further learned that the word was God's agent of creation. All things that came to be, that were made, came to be through him. So that was what the word was doing at the beginning. Now, we jump to what the word is doing in the salvation of mankind and in the incarnation. And we read this amazing statement, and the word became flesh. Now, there's some significance here and then the Greek verbs and wordplay that really emphasizes the reality of the incarnation. Um, for many people of early Greek thought, the notion that God could enter into creation, become part of creation, was abhorrent. And some of the earliest heresies, we see evidence of this in 1 John, is the denial that Jesus truly became flesh and blood. They, they'd say he looked human. You know, You think of the angels who visited um, Lot or Abraham. They looked human, but really they weren't. John couldn't be more emphatic. The word literally became flesh. Up until this point, all of creation is characterized by that which becomes. So you've got the word being with God, the word was with God, and then an overly literal translation of verse 3 would be, all things that came to be came to be through him, and without him was not anything that came to be that has come to be. So you so the contrast is there is God who is, and there's a created order typified by it becomes, it comes into being. And so in verse 14, when John says the word became flesh, we need to understand: Jesus, the one we know as Jesus Christ, truly entered into the creation, truly took on flesh and blood. He didn't just appear human it wasn't jesus inhabiting a human suit he becomes human this is absolutely jaw-droppingly significant now we need to guard against two errors here um, i'm going to read for you in a minute the chalcedonian creed which is where the early church in the fifth century got together to try to guard against errors but In no way does the incarnation alter, there's your blank, not an alteration of his full deity. Jesus' full deity remains fully intact. He he isn't less God, he isn't former God, he he is the God-man. We know this because later in John's gospel, the humbled Christ, after the resurrection in John 20, receives worship from Thomas who says to him, my Lord and my God. So Jesus doesn't stop being God at the Incarnation. Rather, the permanent addition of full humanity. The permanent addition of full humanity. And I say permanent because he, he, it's not just that he became the God-man at the Incarnation. He remains the God-man. Jesus entered into the creation took on a human nature, took on a body of flesh and blood, which is now resurrected and glorified, but he continues in that sense. This is why Colossians 1.15 can refer to him as the firstborn of all creation. This is a stunning thing. I've got to say this carefully so I don't commit heresy. But just as my body is part of me, the Lord intends to raise not just my spirit, but my body. The union of my soul and my body is Jeremy. I'm an enfleshed soul. In the same sense, Jesus' body is Jesus. It's it's not the totality of Jesus. He's more than his body, but his body is him. And to the degree that Jesus' body is flesh and blood is him, he's part of the created order. That body came to be, came into existence, and so Jesus can stand fully in solidarity with the created order. He can be the firstborn of creation. I think that's referencing the resurrection. While remaining fully God. He, he has fully entered into the created order and can stand with the creature as its advocate, even as he continues in abiding in full deity. These, these are deep waters and you got to be careful how you say this. But that's the significance of the Incarnation. This is the significance of his love, his humility, his condescension. This is the length he went to please his Father and to meet our need. So the word became flesh. I'm going to quickly read to you some of the Chalcedonian Creed because there are so many wrong ways to slice this The thing to consider is Jesus now at the incarnation has two natures. He has a divine nature and he has a human nature. We get those categories from Romans 1, 3 to 4. In Romans 1, 3 to 4, Paul writes, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. So you can speak of Jesus according to the flesh or according to his deity as son of God. And when the early church got together in the 5th century, they came up with this. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with us according to manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. And in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures. And here's the part where they speak of the two natures. Inconfusedly, Which is to say, the two didn't mingle and become a third thing. The humanity and the deity remain humanity and deity. They don't mingle and become some third thing. Yet, unchangeably and indivisible and inseparably. Perhaps you might consider as an example, if you had a vase of red sand and green sand and you mixed them, you don't have any new color sand, you can also think of how nearly impossible it would be to separate them out again. So if the two natures, inconfusibly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, the only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him and the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us and the creed of the Holy Fathers has been handed down to us. Now, that's not scripture, but that's a pretty careful, pretty articulate definition. And what we're, again, trying to guard is he is fully human. He is fully God. He is one person. And that union will never be and can never be undone. And all that from the word becoming Flesh. Just pause for a moment. God became human. That should not cease to stun us. The word became flesh. And, next phrase, dwelt among us. Now, some of your Bibles may even have a footnote here. This is an unusual word, um, not the common word for dwelling. Your first blank, literally, Jesus tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. I'll give you your blank as tabernacled because we have the feast of tabernacles coming up in John it's, it's not incidental the word becomes flesh and then pitches his tent tabernacles among us so we see the movement in John 1:1. he was with God right in the beginning was the word and the word was with God where's the word with now with us he tabernacles among us. The incarnation is what happened as Jesus left his heavenly abode and came to dwell with us. This is part of the reason why, in Matthew's gospel, he's called Emmanuel, God with us. He was formerly with God, now is with man, which means Jesus left his home to sojourn with us. You can the notion of living in a tent I know some of you guys like camping. Um, I, I don't know why someone would voluntarily leave the conditioned air. The outside does not, it has unconditioned air. And I'm not a big fan of the unconditioned air or the bugs. Jesus dwelt with the Father in heaven. He was with the Father. We'll see in verse 18, he was by the Father's side. And he left that location he took on flesh and blood, and he tabernacled among us. And this word picture gives us the idea of slumming it, of, of living in a tent. And so you can think of his love, his condescension. And ultimately, this is what is pictured by the Feast of Booths. I gave you the reference there. The Feast of Booths is, of course, intense. Okay, um, the reference there in Leviticus you can look up. But, but what the Lord had done is after delivering the people of Israel in the wilderness, he gave them a feast at harvest time where for one week, it was a celebration, they would make construct booths, tents, temporary dwellings in which they would live in for a week to remember the time in the wilderness and how God had sustained them. Even as they came into the land with vineyards, vineyards they didn't plant, houses they didn't build, They would, year after year, remember they were ultimately sojourners and ultimately God provided for them. Well, we're going to find out when we get to chapter 7 that this also anticipates Christ's own sojourn, pitching his tent among us. But even more significantly, um, this links with Exodus 33. If you turn back to exodus 33 i'll give you your blanks here jesus is the true meeting place between man and god i've told you that this section verses 14 to 18 i think there's about eight direct links between exodus 33 and 34 and john 1 14 to 18. But let me try to set the context for you and for that we'll go all the way back to 32. moses is up on the mountain and while he is up there, the people say, we don't know us become a Moses. Hey, Aaron, make us some gods to worship. And so the Lord, in 32.7, tells Moses, go down for your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf. He calls them a stiff-necked people. And Moses pleads with God. One of the great things we learn in these chapters is God can be reasoned with with, when a righteous intercessor stands up. We'd we'd seen Abraham stand up for for Sodom and Gomorrah, and yet there were not found 10 righteous. We we learned there God would listen to a righteous defense. But here's the first time that I'm aware of. It's successful, certainly at a national level. And and, And Moses reminds the Lord, no, actually, they're your people. Verse 11 O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt? Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, Israel, your servants, whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your offsprings, the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. So there's, there's the first movement. The people sin greatly. God's brought them to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God. And when he's gone 30 days, they give us something else to worship. And Moses intercedes for the people. That doesn't mean there isn't judgment. There is great judgment. The Levites earn their priesthood by walking from one side of the camp to the other, cutting down whoever they encounter, whether it be their brother, their sister, their mother, their father, their son or daughter. And, and Moses crushes the golden calf and, and mingles it with the water, and they have to drink it. You know, that, that golden calf's going to make one final appearance in a more fitting setting. And then, then, then we get this. In verse chapter 33, verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitched it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. These are, in Greek translations of this passage, same verb for tabernacling. The tent of meeting in this context um, is, is what the link is connected to, as the tent of meeting at the giving of the law. And so the tent of meeting is where Moses and God would meet face to face. And when Moses would return, his face would be glowing. It was creepy. They made him put a veil on. The tent of meeting by the end of the book of Exodus becomes the tabernacle. Now you've got a, a more formal, ornate, complex meeting place for God and man. And ultimately, the, t- the tabernacle becomes what? The temple, right? Ultimately, the tabernacle becomes the temple. And what does Jesus say in John chapter 2? When they say, by what sign do you do this? After he makes a whip and drives people out, destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it. And they did not understand, for he was speaking of the temple of his body. John is setting for us up, setting up for us in one fourteen this theme. In the connections with Exodus 32, 33, and 34, Jesus' tabernacle, he pitched his tent. There's a tent here, and it's where Moses and God met. And so one of the truths we get from this is that Jesus, ultimately, all of those meeting places between God and man, be it the tent of meeting or the tabernacle or Solomon's temple, ultimately picture the ultimate meeting place of God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. The tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the temple, where God and man meet and have fellowship and where, if necessary, sacrifice is made and sin is dealt with. Right? And that... Is ultimately picturing prefiguring the Lord Jesus Christ as the true temple of God which is why Jesus can tell the woman at the well that pretty soon it's not gonna matter where you worship right she wants to know about location and until Jesus death on the cross Location matters. God had established the temple, and Jesus tells her, yeah, you Samaritans got it wrong, and the Jews got it right. It it is in Jerusalem. However, I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here, and it's not going to matter where you worship, because that which the temple prefigured has come, and the shadow is done away with. All that in Jesus dwelling among us. So we see both the humility, the suffering, going without his glory and fellowship and we see the connection to the tent of meeting um, and then the next phrase you can you can keep your thumb here because we're, we're going to be back in exodus still um, this is probably the clearest one of the clearest links to exodus 33 hopefully you'll start to see them add up and we have seen his glory we have seen his glory um, let me let me read a, a quote for you here actually i'll read you the quote in just a minute sorry i'm getting ahead of myself um we have seen his glory so as moses intercedes the people back in exodus 33 um he, he the lord relents he doesn't utterly destroy the people look at thirty-three twelve. moses said to the lord see you have said to me bring up this people but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. So we first move from Moses saying, you, you, don't utterly destroy them, Lord. Don't utterly destroy them. And the Lord listens. And next, Lord, don't not go up with us. Lord, go, go up with your people. Go up in their midst. Because he says in verse 14, my presence will not, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. You have found favor in my sight and I Know you by name. And then Moses presses one final point. Moses said, show me your glory. This is the connection. Show me your glory. And John writes, we have seen his glory. And the Lord's response to Moses, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, Then the Lord. I'll be gracious to him i'll be gracious and i will show mercy to whom i will show mercy but he said you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live that's the link with no one has seen god at any time in verse 18 of john chapter 1. so we have seen his glory as moses saw some of god's glory at the giving of the law let me pause and give you a working definition of glory Glory, I think biblically, is something like that which produces, provokes, praise, worship, and satisfaction within us. It does it automatically. You see this when you, you go to the Grand Canyon and you look over the edge and you go, whoa. And it's a simultaneous satisfying joy external praise the same thing happens when you're watching sports and and somebody does something very skillful I've been told and no but you see it people get up out of their seats what are they doing they are praising they are filled simultaneously with excitement and energy and joy and what comes out of their lips is praise and as long as they are putting these lesser glories in their right position that's all good and well that's what glory does we are made to behold glory. We are. In John's gospel, there's not people who like glory and people who don't. The issue in John's gospel is do you seek the glory that comes from man or the glory that comes from God? The assumption is everyone seeks glory. Everyone's interested in glory. You go to these big budget Hollywood movies because you want to see a spectacle. You want to see you know giant star people fighting each other or whatever because you want to see something that elicits some sense of wonder and awe from you. We're made for glory. And John says, we have seen his glory. Moses, here in Exodus 33, show me your glory. God says, you you can't see my glory in love. But I'll show you some of it. I'll show you some of it. Now, we saw that God's glory is his goodness. It's not fundamentally about bright lights and shining Brightness, it's about his goodness. He says, show me your glory. The Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. But ultimately, Moses could only see the afterglow, couldn't he? He could only see the afterglow. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock, God says. I'm going to walk by. You can't look, but after I walk by, you can see something of the afterglow. You shall see my back, verse 23, but my face shall not be seen. And then John begins to clarify the nature of this glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now keep keep your finger here next to this and let's go back to John chapter 1. I'll try to move. Um, Now some of your translations have only begotten And I want to suggest to you that that's not a a great translation. Um, I think I think a better understanding of this word is something like unique or one of a kind son. Monogenes. Mono one. Gene like you get the word um, genome or species from. I think the emphasis is not only son, but one of a kind son unique in a class all his own son. Part of the reason for that is the same word is used in Hebrews 11 of Abraham's son, Isaac. Hebrews eleven seventeen by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his ESV only son. Except we know Abraham has at least one other son named Ishmael, right? But, but Isaac is the special son of promise. He's the one of a kind son. He's the unique son, Likewise, haven't we just read in verse 12 of John chapter 1, to those who received him and believe in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children, which is another way of saying sons and daughters of God. God has more children than one, but one of those children is special, is unique, is one of a kind. That's the idea. That's why Jesus can say, I go to my Father and your Father and my God and your God, but Jesus will not group himself with us and say our God. That, that distinction, he, yes, he's, he's God's son, and as a Christian, I'm God's son, and those are two different things. That, that's the idea. Jesus is the unique, one-of-a-kind son. John 20, 17 He says, I am going to my father and your father, to my God and your God. So it's true. God is a father to Jesus. God is a father to you and to me. Jesus won't group those together because he's the one of a kind, special, unique. His sonship is unique to any other sonship but notice the word picture here. As we're thinking of the glory, what type of glory is it? It's the glory, then, of a unique, one-of-a-kind son, which starts to give us information about the Trinity. We've considered this as Christians. You've probably thought through this, but when John begins to a Jewish audience, if someone Jewish were reading this, they know, if anything, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. And now we read there's one who is the word, who is God and is with God. Are we polytheists? And now we get some categories. How how does this one who is the word, who is God, and who is with God, both, how does he relate to God? Are they in competition? Are they in conflict? No, we learn. They're in the relationship of a father and a son. They're in harmony. They are, here's your blank, Jesus is a loving son to his loving father. This is the exact point Jesus wants to unpack in John chapter 5 when he drops the my father works on the Sabbath, so I work on the Sabbath. For this reason, the Jews were seeking to kill him because he was calling God his Father, making himself an equal with God. And so, in John five twenty-two, he write, he says, and we read. Turn over to John five. Briefly, let's start in nineteen. Truly, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Jesus is explaining his relationship with the Father is in perfect harmony. There's no conflict, there's no cross purposes. There's a father who loves his son, reveals what he does, and there's a son who loves his father and does his will. And we, and we get that category first here in 114. What was Jesus' glory like? It was glory like that of a unique, one-of-a-kind son from the father. Which means then ultimately, Jesus' glory is that of his father. We're familiar with the notion of a proud parent, right? You've seen those stickers, my My kid's an honor roll student hat. And those can sometimes seem a little smug. But every spring, do we not go to high school graduations from proud parents? Is there not a proudness or a pride in the accomplishment of your child that is good and fitting and right? That's the picture being put forward here. You can imagine a proud, wealthy landowner, if his son were accomplished, if his son were special and unique, and set himself apart, how he might delight over him. That's the picture here. His glory was that like or as a unique, one-of-a-kind, special son from his father. Here, now, I have a quote from D.A. Carson. The glory displayed in the incarnate word is the kind of glory a father grants to his one and only best-loved son. And this father... Is God Himself. Thus, it is nothing less than God's glory that John and his friends witnessed in the Word made flesh. And Jesus makes it clear later in chapter 5 the only glory He's interested in is the glory that comes from His Father. In John 17, He speaks of, You've glorified me, now I glorify you. The glory seen in Jesus Christ is the glory of God. Brings us then to our last phrase, full of grace and truth. So the first qualifier describing this glory that John says we have seen is this glory-like, a unique, one-of-a-kind, best-loved son from his father. And the second phrase he uses is full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. Again, we're describing the glory. And and turn back to John, to, to Exodus 34 here. Now when I first read this years ago, I wondered why grace and truth God has Carol, how many attributes are outlined in your class for God? Probably, about 20. probably about what what? About 20. about 20. You could probably have had more, but 20 attributes. And is simplicity of God, is any one of those attributes prime? No. no. God's holy. God's just. God is righteous, God is wrathful, God is merciful, God is wise. You could have used any of those words here in one sense to describe God's glory. Could you not speak of the glory of God's wisdom, the glory of God's power? And yet John settles on this glory is characterized, typified by by two things, not 20, grace and truth. Why, Why grace? Why truth? Why those two? I think the answer is is Exodus 34. Let's read when Moses said, show me your glory. When the Lord said, well, you you can't see it, but you can hide in the rock and I can walk by and I can say my name and you can look on my backside. What happens there? Exodus 34, 6 and 7. I'll I'll start in 5. Exodus 34, 5, 6 and 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood before him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. God's glory is his name and is his goodness, and the center of his name is he abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness that's the center of this Declaration the Lord the Lord one who abounds in steadfast love and covenant loyal love and in faithfulness and D.A. Carson also writes this The glory of God manifest in the incarnate word was full of grace and truth in that case John is almost certainly directing his readers to Exodus 33 to 34 Moses begs God there, show me your glory. The Lord replies, I'll cause my goodness to pass before you. God's glory then is supremely his goodness. The italicized words here in his commentary is is steadfast love and faithfulness. Spell out the nature of the goodness, which is God's glory. The two crucial words in Hebrew are chesed, variously rendered steadfast love, mercy, covenant love, or Graciousness and truth met. And if you think of truth as dependability, reliability, you get faithfulness. Even our English word faithfulness has fide, truth in it, built into it. Steadfast love and faithfulness, reliability, dependability, grace and truth. I, I think John is grabbing this. And in, and in Exodus 34, God's steadfast love and his faithfulness, his truthfulness, his dependability is seen in two things. Keeping, verse 7, steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. That's, that's the demonstration of his loyal covenant love. What's the demonstration of his fidelity? Who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, I'm sure Moses, when he first heard that, probably scratched his head even as he bowed down to worship. I mean, understand what God says. Is, you want to see my glory? Here's my glory. I am merciful, and I'm abundantly merciful, not just to people, but to their kids and to their kids and to their kids. But also, make no mistake, I don't let guilty people go free. And Moses worships. And John writes... We, we've seen this glory. Going back to John chapter 1 to close up here. And, and the point I want to make is this. The glory John is describing that he's seen in Jesus Christ is the same glory, same quality of glory revealed to Moses at Sinai. Why is this important? My title is message, Behold the Glory of the Word Made Flesh. Why go long this morning, which we surely will do? Because whether or not you see glory in the sun is crucially important. Glory in John's gospel not only goes beyond my definition of that which produces awe, satisfaction, joy, and praise, actually produces faith. Go to chapter 2. Verse 11. Jesus' first miracle, his first sign returns the Water and jars for purification into wedding wine. We read this in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Jesus' disciples are the only one that saw the glory in the sign. Everyone else just saw the wine. And even the the bridegroom and the head waiter don't know where it came from. But Jesus' disciples knew and they saw glory in it, and they believed. They believed. 2 Corinthians 4 describes the difference between believers and unbelievers, those who perish and those who live in this context. Listen to this. In their case, he says our, he's using actually the same imagery from, from Exodus 34. Our gospel, he says, is not veiled, unlike Moses who would wear a veil. In their case, those who are perishing, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. What is, has what is he blinded them from seeing? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. Why do people perish? They've been blinded. From seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They, they read the scripture, they hear the gospel, and they don't see something beautiful. They don't see something satisfying. Praise doesn't come out of their lips like it does for other things. That's why they perish. Well, they perish because they don't believe, but why don't they believe? They don't see anything worth believing in. They don't see anything wondrous. They don't see anything glorious. They don't see anything praiseworthy, satisfying. Then he says, How, how, how do we get saved? For God, who said, "Let light shine out of darkness," has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So you could, in one sense, you could split the world between believers and unbelievers. You could also split the world between seers of glory in the face of Jesus Christ and those who are blinded from seeing glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So when John says, "We have seen his glory." I think part of the reason he jumps to we isn't just because he and others who saw Jesus walk around, but I think Christians, we, who are part of the church, have seen glory. And so it's vitally important that you see glory. And in John's gospel, and this is the final point, Jesus can reveal glory in miracles. He can reveal his glory in loving the Samaritan woman at the well. But ultimately, where's where's Jesus' glory most clearly seen? Most clearly, it's seen in the cross, right? John 12 Um John 12, 16, we read, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered these things. And as Judas leaves to go betray Jesus, Jesus says in John 13, 31, now is the son of man glorified and God glorified in him. When he begins his high priestly prayer in John 17, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son. So in John's gospel, where is the greatest Unfolding of the glory of the word it's on the cross, which, which makes sense, because if the glory of God revealed to Moses in Exodus is the glory that I am abundantly, overflowingly merciful, I forgive, and I forgive the kids of the kids of the kids, but I don't let guilty people go free. <laughs> oh, make no mistake. Where, where does that come together? Where, where do we see how that math works out but on the cross? God's glory, here's your final blank, is most fully seen in God's mercy mercy and wrath revealed at the cross. At the cross, on the cross, when the son of man bears our sin in his body on the tree, we see, oh my Lord, you abound in steadfast love and as we see the punishment for sin and that the judge of the world doesn't turn to blind eye and he doesn't look away and he doesn't just say i'll overlook it this time but does he fully punish and avenge sin yes he does he is faithful full of steadfast love and faithfulness full of mercy and truth Jesus on the cross, I think, makes sense of how God can say, here's my glory. I am overflowingly, abundantly merciful. And I take sin seriously, and I punish it. And John says, after Moses said, show me your glory, you can't see my glory. John says, we've seen it. We've seen it. It's the glory as of an only begotten son, full of grace and truth, and i and Look where he goes next if you skip over John the Baptist. For the law came through Moses. We're back to Sinai. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So I I pray that you join me in seeking to see this glory. That you might see in the cross not something shameful. Not a stumbling block or an offense. But the glory of God. Your salvation. This is how Paul frames it. He boasts in the cross. It's foolishness. It's foolishness to the Greeks and to the Jews, but to us who are being saved it's the power of God. Let's close the Lord of prayer as we get ready for a time of communion. Lord God, your wisdom may seem like foolishness to this world, but it is wiser than men. And your weakness is stronger than men. Lord, we confess that we are drawn away by so many lesser lights, so many lesser glories captivate us and enthrall us. And we sing their praises and we devote ourselves to them. But Lord God, we need to see glory in your son, the word. We need to be supremely satisfied, enthralled with him, and ultimately with his cross. It's his death on the cross now that we commemorate and we celebrate until his coming. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we may come rightly. In Jesus' name, amen.